Today's reading will be 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. I'll be reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which you can follow on the screen behind me. Naaman was a very important man in a very important country. So you see, he was very, very, very important. But Naaman was sick. He had leprosy, which is a nasty thing that stops you from feeling anything. Bits of you fall off without you noticing, like bashed fingers and squished toes. It may sound funny, but it wasn't. And Naaman certainly wasn't laughing. There was no cure. It never went away, and in the end, it killed you. Naaman needed help. Now, there was a little slave girl who worked for Naaman, and she knew someone who could help him. But there was a problem. Naaman was her enemy. Not long before, Naaman had led an army raid on her home in Israel. He had killed her whole family, carried her off to Syria, and made her his slave. Every night, she cried herself to sleep. She had lost everything. Why would she, of all people, want to help Naaman? Didn't she hate him and want to hurt him back? Didn't she want to make him pay for the wrong he'd done? That's what you'd expect. But instead of hating him, she loved him. Instead of hurting him back, she forgave him. I want Naaman to get well, she said to her mistress. There's a man in Israel called Elisha who can heal him. I'll go, said Naaman, loading up his wagons and putting on his flashing armor. But I'll go to the palace because that's where someone important like me gets healed. So he hurried off to Israel and went straight to the king. My healing, please, he announced. I can do lots of things, the king replied, but only God can heal. Just then a message from Elisha arrived. Send Naaman here, it read. So Naaman hurried off to Elisha's house, but Elisha didn't even come out and greet him. He just sent out his servant instead. Doesn't Elisha realize who I am, Naaman thought? But what the servant said next made him even crosser. Wash in there, he said. Just wash, Naaman laughed, in that slimy, stinky river. He looked around to see if this was some kind of joke. It wasn't. Any person can wash in a river, he thought. I am Naaman. I am important. I should do something important so God will heal me. And he rode off in a rage. Of course, you and I both know that that is not how God does things. All Naaman needed to do was nothing. It was the one thing Naaman didn't have. God knew that Naaman was even sicker on the inside than he was on the outside. Naaman was proud. He thought he didn't need God. His heart didn't work properly. It couldn't feel anything. You see, Naaman had leprosy of his heart. God was not only going to heal Naaman's skin, he was going to heal his pride. Naaman finally agreed to wash in the river, and instantly his skin became smooth like a baby. Naaman wanted to pay Elisha. God healed you. You can't pay, said Elisha. It's free. And so it was that a very sick man was healed, all because of a little servant girl who forgave him. God knew sin was like leprosy. It stopped his children's hearts from working properly, and in the end it would kill them. Years later, God was going to send another servant to forgive as she did, to forgive all of God's children and heal the terrible sickness in their hearts. Their hearts were broken, 
but God can mend broken hearts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when we look at the Bible, we, we realize that in the biblical narrative, children have a very prominent role to play in the biblical narrative, but it seems like they're rarely the focus. I can't ever remember doing a sermon on, a, on this topic. I can, I can honestly say I've never done a sermon on this topic in a lot of years that I've been preaching. And, and I don't know about you, but if you've had a church background, how many times have you ever heard a, a sermon directed at just the idea of children? I mean, oftentimes children, if, if they're touched upon in Scripture, it's basically as a warm-up to their being adults. You think about David, and he's, he's focused upon as a, as a young boy who then goes and, and kills this Philistine giant. But, but it's also a, a precursor, a warm-up to his becoming uh, this king of Israel. So again, the children, the focus on children is just as a warm-up to their becoming adults. And yet what's interesting is that when God wants to do something very particular or very important to show who he is or what his kingdom is like, he often chooses children to help him reveal this. You see this again and again and again throughout Scripture. I mean, think about these children in the Bible. Samuel, his attentiveness to God when Eli is unable to hear the voice of God. Samuel recognizes God as a God who hears. David, his confidence in God's salvation when all the grown-ups were afraid to confront the Philistines and go out and fight their representative, this giant by the name of, Philist, of, of, the giant by the name of Goliath. And David recognizes God as a God who saves. The little boy in the manger who attracts the attention of adults, shepherds, and, and astrologers from distant lands. Or the little boy who, who offers his meager little lunch to Jesus in the hopes that maybe it'll help Jesus feed the crowds of over 5,000 people who have gathered to hear Jesus speak. He recognizes God as a God who provides. Or the children in the temple who, show, who shout, Hosanna to the son of David, against the, the objections of the chief priests and scribes, and they recognize Jesus as Messiah. So while the comments and actions of children are often ignored by Bible scholars, they're featured in children's Bibles. And that's why I had the children's Bible read to you this morning. Because it, it, it draws our attention to things that we might otherwise overlook as we function as adults. If you've ever read a children's Bible, if you've read one lately, yes, they might take some liberties. But what they do is they cause you to think as well. And they cause you to perhaps take notice of things that you might have otherwise not even recognized or seen in the text of Scripture. Well, today's story about the little girl could be an example of this. So turn to 2 Kings 5, if you would, please. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one underneath your seat, and it's page 311 in, there, in your Bible. 2 Kings chapter 5. We will look at this text. The story is located in Aram. It's in Syria, okay, modern-day Syria. And just as by way of background, the Syrians were the, the greatest enemy of Israel in the ninth century. And yes, yet the text opens up by saying that Israel's God gave the Syrians the victory over Israel. Did you hear that? Israel's God gave the Assyrians the victory over Israel. And the one who brought that victory was this man by the name of Naaman. 
He's the commander of the army. He's said that it's said in the text that he's highly regarded by the king. He's held in high favor by the king, but he also has leprosy. We're introduced to this unnamed servant girl. She's a prisoner of war. She's taken from her family. She's made a servant to Naaman's wife. And in the text, she's confident that this prophet of Israel, by the name of Elisha, can heal Naaman's leprosy. And so her seemingly insignificant words change the course of the story, and they are of international significance. Well, throughout the story, if you're looking down at the text with your eyes on the text, you'll see contrasts. If we were to read this text, you'll see contrasts, word plays between big and small and significant and insignificant. Naaman is described as a great man. The servant girl is described as little. A little girl utters a few words that cause the leprous skin of a big, important man to become like the skin of a little boy. Hear the contrast again with big and small and significant and insignificant. That's in verse 14. We saw, we heard read through the Bible story, but it's also in the text where Naaman is miffed when Elisha sends out a servant with the instructions on what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to simply go into this water and dip himself seven times in the water and his leprosy will be healed. And it's an affront to him. He's a great man. He should be given a great task. And his servants say in verse 13, well, maybe if you were given a big task, you would do it. So again, the the interplay, the contrast between big and small and significant and insignificant. And so through this series of ironic contrasts where the reader is invited to see what is important, what is and isn't important to God. And although the servant girl is little and insignificant and lacking power, Her words are first in the narrative, if you notice the text in verse 3. And what does she say? She utters a wish, a wish. She says, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Esther Men, a biblical scholar, comments on this single line, and I'm going to read her quote to you. It's, it's really rich. She writes, Her single line contains no lament or complaint, no whining or cursing, which we might expect from a diminutive captive of war forced to serve the enemy. Her words are also not a command or report or any other kind of speech that would have its place in times of war and in the high circles that manage war. Instead, the little girl's words express a wish contrary to fact, if only. The girl has a heart full of compassion and wishes only for the enemy commander's healing, despite his role in defeating her people and taking her into captivity. She also wants to make known the power for life that is among her own people through the prophet in Samaria. In a time of killing and destruction, she focuses her attention on healing, and restoration, even for the military leader on the other side. The little girl no doubt wishes that many things were different. She would certainly like to be at home with her parents and neighbors and country people, but the only words that we have in this story express her wish that Naaman could be with the prophet in Samaria. Simple presence is what she wishes for Naaman, 
just as proximity and immediacy are what children want most from their parents and others whom they love and trust to make things right. Her words express confidence that this kind of closeness to the prophet would lead to the commander's healing. The words that the little girl speaks suggest a childlike, indiscriminate hope that things might be better for everyone, everywhere. Her wish envisions a world without sharply drawn national borders and without clear-cut divisions between enemies and friends. Her words lack rancor or resentment for what has happened to disrupt her life. They are a magnanimous expression of trust that there is a force for life and healing more powerful than any army. If only the power of healing and life possessed by the prophet in Samaria were the power that was recognized and respected in international relations. Powerful words. And in this instance, with those few words that are uttered and with what unveils, what unfolds next, God uses this little girl's words, this wish of hers to change name and story. We see in verse 15 of chapter 5 that after Naaman is healed, he acknowledges Israel's God as is the only true God in all the earth, verse 15. And in keeping with the belief that each land had its own deity, Naaman requests to take soil from the land of Israel home to his country of Aram. In order to recognize that this God who has healed him is the God not simply of Israel, but the God of all peoples. And so the mighty Naaman becomes a worshiper of Israel's God through his experience of the power of small things. And in this story, I think that we see a, a pattern that's repeated throughout the narrative of Scripture, and that is that God brings himself glory through seemingly insignificant and insufficient things. God brings himself glory frequently through what seems to most people to be insignificant and insufficient things. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God's spirit is surprisingly present in act and active through what often appears to be weakness, vulnerability, and trust that children in particular represent so well. So I want to finish with a story. Because I sleep with the director of children's ministry here at Grace, <laughs> I am married to her, um, that I know, <laughs> I knew that would wake some people up. <laughs> I know when she receives texts early on Sunday morning, and those texts come from people who are part of this church family who are, for whatever reason, letting her know that they're unable to, to carry out their responsibility towards the children. And on more than one occasion recently, I've offered to help her in those spaces when I'm not doing this or during the, the time that follows this, this gathering time. One of the things I love doing is I love going in there and I love being with the kids. I love looking at their name tags. They all have to wear a name tag and it has their name on it. And I love trying to match their name up with their family name and then trying to remember who their parents are. And then once I know that, then I start probing for family stories. <laughs> I'm serious, I do. 
But it's fair because you guys had your chance when my kids were younger, all right? There's four of them. So you had your chance, and now it's my turn. Now, on this particular Sunday, I was serving in the, uh, it was recent, I was serving in the kindergarten class. And we had just been out, and I had led them in this rousing game of freeze tag, which it gets a little harder to play as you get older with these kids. But I, we played this game of freeze tag outside, and that was to wear them out so they could come in, and when it came time for the Bible story time, they would have their energy somewhat dissipated. And so we sat in a circle, and I sat down with the kids in the circle, and the other person that was helping to lead was going to be reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And as I sat on the floor, this young girl came over and just plopped right into my lap. I was a little bit surprised by that because, you know, I wasn't a regular in the class, and, and you know, I was surprised that she might trust me like that, so I just went with it. And throughout the story, as the story was being read, and I was just sitting there, and my hands were just down by my side, she, was, she started, my, my sleeves were rolled up, and she started just stroking gently my arms and my hands. I was just noticing that as well, just paying attention to the story, but stroking, stroking my skin. And I didn't say a thing, but I was amazed at her trust, her welcome, her embrace of me. I also knew her family story, that there had been a disruption in her family. As I sat there just in this moment, I reflected on the possibility that perhaps my presence with her at that moment was the male presence that she needed in her life at that moment. It was a powerful moment. No words were exchanged, but... It felt to me like something significant was happening in that moment. And that event lingered in my memory. It still has lingered. And it brought to mind Jesus' words in Mark 10, which are repeated in Matthew 18 and Luke 18. Listen to the words. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. Touch. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These who trust, who welcome, who embrace. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Wow. You see, I need children to teach me about God's ways. I need children to teach me about God's ways, about what matters to him, about how his kingdom advances. You see, Jesus wants to give us so much more. That's what his kingdom is about. It's about him pouring out his blessing his presence, and what he wants to do in this world to make all things new. He wants to do that. And that's why he tells us to pray, your kingdom come, may your kingdom come. But we need to, we need to learn how to have the posture of children. Being open, being receptive, trusting, 
instead of closed and guarded and cynical. And so what better way to develop that than to spend time with the children of our community? You see, we have a great opportunity here at Grace to not only disciple the children of our community, but to be discipled by them. That's the counterintuitive part, and that's why I took the time to talk to you today. The thing that God may want to do to really bring his kingdom into reality here may involve us becoming like little children. What better way to learn how to do that than to spend time with them? So I invite you to join me in that opportunity. I'm going to continue to to press into that as part of my own discipling. I invite you to do that as well. Jesus, I thank you for the beauty of the people that you have made who are sitting in here today and are reflecting on the beauty of what you want to do in our lives and how you want to work through us and how you want to shape us. I ask that you would speak to each person in a very specific way about some aspect of who you are and what you're about and the role that they might play in this. I ask that you'd raise our vision to see that your kingdom is something that you want to give in fuller measure. And you're inviting us to be like little children, to simply trust, to receive, to embrace. So I pray that for us as a people. I pray that for myself and for us as a people, that through your spirit, we might be known for that. I thank you for this opportunity to be together today and the conversation that's going to take place afterwards in your name. Amen.